Hey all, welcome back to our So You Want to Be a Critical Social Worker podcast series. I'm Greg Keefe and I'm here with my colleagues and co-hosts, Sundori, Jay, and Sarah. So this episode, I think is going to, in some ways, be picking up from where we left off last time, where we were talking about trauma-informed approaches. I've been thinking about the emotional weight of this work, both in a broad sense and more specifically within intersections of crises, trauma, and critical reflexivity. As we get going, I want to name for anyone listening that this is a heavy and difficult topic. And in in acknowledgement of that, I also want to thank my colleagues for sharing space to think about this and also encourage everyone to take space if they need it. To reflect personally, I've spent close to seven years doing frontline work and it's been really emotionally impactful. We know that this is part of social work. It's incredibly heavy and that weight is something that we can end up carrying. I'm coming to this with multiple anxieties. One that's pressing and in the backdrop, and I'm not sure if we'll get to unpack, is that we know that social workers can get burnt out. Another piece that I'm hoping we can spend some time with is how this emotional weight can be alive in the moment, in our practice. It feels really pressing for me to recognize how affect is part of how I inhabit any situation, and it makes a claim on what's happening that it's scary or untenable or heartbreaking or maybe really beautiful. And I named crises specifically because this is a context where I think there can be a magnifying glass in this dynamic. And because crises are something that social workers encounter and navigate alongside folks across a breadth of practice contexts. The vicarious impact of trauma is another piece that identifies how we can carry this weight. There's a piece I'm also hoping we can touch on. Before digging into talking about emotional weight specifically, I want to ground things in thinking about crises. Albert Roberts and Alan Ottens offer a definition of crisis, that a crisis happens in the context of an event that might be unexpected, unplanned, potentially harmful, and it's really crucially about the perception of what's happening. A perceived threat or disruption paired with a sense of not knowing how to resolve it, and also struggling to cope with it. This focus on perception that identifies that what an event means for someone can't be known in advance, will take on different meanings for different people and circumstances that may be experienced as a crisis for one person may not be experienced as this for another. The definition being offered here provides a conception of crisis happening at an individual level and I think it's also really important to hold this with an orientation towards macro level issues that create shape and are entwined with individual crises. As practitioners, our relationship to crisis is tied to practice frameworks we adopt. These can look like a lot of different things. Models for crisis intervention specifically are often entangled with our work and are something that clinical training is broadly provided for. In broad strokes, these models offer us modes of assessment and intervention and are often task-oriented. That typically means a focus on the individual level and providing a pathway for action within this micro-context. Robert's seven-stage intervention model is an example of a widely cited framework that provides a generalist, task-oriented umbrella for approaching crisis. Assist training is something that's also on the top of my mind, as it's something that's broadly trained for, particularly within organizational contexts. I think a really important piece to dwell on is how it intersects with duty to report. A common way that looks in these practice models is calling 911 when it's understood that some sort of really substantial harm is imminent. It's really crucial to name how much potential harm, trauma, and re-traumatization can result from this. Calling 911 almost always means the police will arrive. We've been seeing how terribly and how often this goes wrong. We know there's a risk of police violence and the responses to people navigating crisis, and that people end up being hurt and killed. We know this is differentially happening to BIPOC folks. Desmond Cole is one among others who's been documenting and speaking to how this has been happening in Toronto. A call to 911 frequently also means the involvement of a hospital. In my work in the mental health sector, I've seen a lot of interactions between service users and hospitals. It's such huge disparities in how hospitals respond to these folks. I've sometimes heard from people that their interactions with hospitals have felt really supportive, or perhaps there was someone working there they really connected with. However, this has been paired with so many stories of encounters that were condescending, coercive, racist, 
how folks have encountered stigma and discrimination specific to the very thing they're going to the hospital for. Something I've seen a lot of is folks that are navigating a mental health diagnosis going to an emergency department due to a medical issue and their medical issue being framed and approached through a lens that constructs their situation in terms of symptoms of a mental health diagnosis. So to take in that emotional piece for just a moment and to think about supporting someone experiencing a crisis, I might be afraid of some harm happening to them or maybe someone else in that crisis context. I might also be afraid of what happens if I call 911 and all the harm that could come from that. When we were in the early stages of this project and I named this was a subject I was interested in, Jay sent some resources my way that are really relevant and important. They point to a path for supporting folks in crisis in ways that don't default to and in fact offer active concrete alternatives to calling 911. One of these is literature from the Trans Lifeline, which operates a peer support service run by trans folks for trans and questioning peers, and has an explicit mandate of no non-consensual active rescue, which means in the absence of consent, no calls to 911, emergency services, or law enforcement. Framing this policy, Trans Lifeline names police violence, criminalization, if incarcerated or hospitalized, folks may be denied access to correctly gendered facilities, their list goes on and centers on identifying the people going through trauma with the police, first responders and hospitals puts people at higher risk for suicide. They also named that initiating or not ruling out as a possibility, non-consensual active rescue can prevent or break trust, keep people from accessing supports and ultimately leaves people in more precarious situations. Literature specific to the Oakland Power Projects is another one of these resources. Here's community-based action in response to community needs, whether those be specific to emergency health issues, opioid overdose prevention, mental health-related issues, paired with a focus on providing the community with options outside of calling 911. And if emergency services are called, this happening explicitly in a context of assessing risk associated with that and paired with strategies for acting as a buffer and advocate. It's a response to community needs that looks to harm caused by police and works to reduce the reach of policing into Oaklanders' lives. Trans Lifeline Oakland Power Projects, they take an explicit eye to potential harms tied to crisis intervention. They challenge mainstream intervention models, name injustices they're entwined with, and name that we can do better. This all also importantly ties back into the organizational context of our practice. If we as social workers are part of an organization and may compel or perhaps explicitly demand certain practice models in response to crises are followed. So I'd like to pause here with the group and provide some space for folks to reflect. There's a lot to be unpacked here, so I'm inviting everyone to really go anywhere with this. One thing I'll perhaps name as attention for me is that organizational context piece. I'm coming from a work context, a largely biomedical context that exerts particular expectations on me as a worker. And to think about some of these challenges to mainstream intervention models, some of these calls seem accessible to heed to in this context, but others really call for restructuring that goes beyond me individually. So I'm wondering how as a social worker in the field, in such a context, how to take up these challenges. You and Zanduri with the hard hitters uh, opening up, but they're important questions. And I think I have some immediate thoughts. I think I can't help but think about this in just, you know, employed practice, you know, for social workers or other volunteers of crisis hotlines, I know that I similarly in gender-based violence work early on in my career uh, when helping set up a very um, new accessible system, trying to communicate to essentially who was really in charge of uh, exactly the procedural aspects of this adapted crisis text and chat hotline. Um, you know, as much as people like myself and other colleagues were the frontline people supervising our volunteers and already trying to communicate the gaps of uh, what, and I, and I have to say, I love how Trans Lifeline calls 
non-consensual active rescue because I think that really puts it into a really important perspective because even as I remember trying to frame the conversation with my former employers of informed consent practices, trying to even really ease a caller that if, for example, they were to uh, discuss any aspects that may allow me as the listener to perceive that either a child is at risk or that they are at harms of themselves or in domestic violence cases, you know, if they are in immediate sources of danger, then of course we have to involve active rescue. And it's so much more complicated, like you said, Greg, right? I mean, especially for, I know my perspective, thinking a lot about queer and trans folks, as well as racialized folks, or cutie BIPOC, even more specifically, our communities are so devastated historically when involving uh, external interventions or even just, you know, families of immigrants trying to understand and uh, regain a context of even trusting state enforcers or authorities. Like I think about my own self as a kid, you know, never wanting to trust the police in my own instances where I felt I needed to call 911 um, when I was witnessing acts of domestic abuse, etc. I think, you know, when I faced backlash, um, I was basically told to sit in my place. Uh, I didn't know any better. And when I got, you know, more experience, although again, using the voices of myself, frontline folks, and being a member, the only representative at that table with marginalized identities, um, I was told to sit in my place in that managerialist aspect and essentially told, yeah, the feelings that I had to bring, those of my volunteers and fellow colleagues who do this for the sake of reducing vicarious trauma, you know, we're basically just told to, you know, sit down. And also the fact that they had important partners with police and they needed to be accountable to the police, which, you know, who are we accountable for? Is it the police or the clients we serve? And when you think about who funds what, anywho, I digress. I'm going to stop talking now, but yeah, you've given me a lot to think about, Greg. So thank you. And thank you for sharing, Jay. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's I, it's a really heavy conversation. I'm recognizing. Um, yeah, it's very real. I'll just say that. Well, I'm curious, Greg. Can I ask you how you've since like found yourself reflecting on it? This question was important for you. I'm curious. Y yeah. yeah. Um, like like some of the things. Actually, one thing that's really been on my mind, like th like thinking about, we've been having these conversations around around having non police led response to, um, to, to to crisis. And one thing that seems really integrally entwined with that is really talking about the mental health system as a as a whole and mental health law and psychiatry and how that all functions specifically in relation to mental health forms. Cause the, like, as it works in um, like community contexts right now, if a mental health form is issued, like that's legally entwined with the police, that's a police led response to go pick someone up and bring them to the hospital and, and talking about non-police led teams in the absence of really kind of reworking how kind of psychiatry interacts with police, how mental health forms interact with police, how caseworkers going to a JOP and getting a form too. Like, like all those pieces are really entwined. And like, I think that's a really big puzzle to start unpacking. But then I like other things too, which, which I mentioned feel really concrete and it makes me but like in a way it's not, I, I think in some ways I've been trying to have an eye to, but, but, but I think this like really puts a finger on it in a much more kind of focused way. But even, even things like having conversations with folks where we've, we've identified that like 
maybe maybe they feel like they need to go to an emergency department to feel safe but like what do we do to make that safe like can we can can we take the bus there together can i be present there either as someone to just like as emotional support or do they want me to be an advocate or or like those types the, the those types of things um is that, I, I think like one of the things that's really hard is or common i should say is like you have su like suicidal ideation uh, a, a plan and there becomes this like hair trigger on 911 and really being really critical of that and trying to 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 find ways that don't just default to that which is hard can i think can be really hard in a management context or organizational context or a context with peers where like that's like the thing that people do and be, and being able to like like in some ways it's like it, it's it, it's partly like being really confident and being able to make really good plans with people, but also as a worker, being willing to like, how far can you stick your neck out to, 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 to try something different? There's a, a mess of thoughts there. Greg, this, this conversation and this question is one of the things that um, I guess scares me about going into the field and my, um, whatever experience I have both personally and professionally, um, those haven't intersected in terms of my experience with crisis, I'll say. So, you know, I've dealt with crises uh, that I'm having or folks in my personal life are having. Um, and then I've also had professional power in this type of work, but I've never had professional power in responding to crises, if that makes sense. And that combination I think is, so important for social workers to recognize and it's the combination that i think that scares me because um it you know anytime you're trying to support someone through something or give advice or whatever it might be there's always risk in that there's always pressure in that but you know when we're when we're in the field as trained social workers, we just have so much power to influence those things. What we do and suggest or guide people through has so much more weight. Um, and so very likely more consequence. Um, so it's really scary to me, but um, you know, not having experience professionally in responding to crises, something you said, Greg, that to me is feels promising in terms of my own um, understanding of that work is when you talked about being an advocate. And I think about how, um, you know, service users will be interacting with our power. And as I've mentioned, I'm uh, cognizant and scared about what that might mean for them. But we might also have opportunities to mitigate um, what's going on when they're interacting with other uh, mechanisms of power, like the police, like hospitals, like mental health institutions, whether that's where we're working or not. So I'm interested in the idea of, you know, there's these initial questions of what's our immediate response? Who are we calling or not calling? What services are we bringing folks into? Again, whether it's policing, hospitals, um, or other institutions, um, I'm really interested in the idea that we can stay with them through that. Like, how can we be by their side to just mitigate whatever harm might happen and help to guide the process in a way that could be more helpful to them? Um, and I think what is useful to me in that is it, it just these questions are so big around do we or do we not call the police? And I think for many reasons that have already been touched on, that is perhaps a easier question for us, um, because I think it's easier for us at this point, knowing what we know to be very critical around interactions with police. But for me, at least, um, I'm less certain about what it means to interact with the medical system and take people to hospitals, right? I know less about what can happen in those situations. Um, and so those feel like really big decisions we might have to make in the blink of an eye, which is very scary. But the idea that perhaps, yes, there is that decision, but there's so much that we can do after that. We can stay with them. We can be an advocate. It's not necessarily 
you've made the decision and that will be the absolute make or break. It could be, I'm sure, but it doesn't, it won't always be. Um, yeah, it's scary power to have, but um, thinking about it as more of a continuum of how can we just support folks through their entire experience uh, is, is feeling helpful for me. Yeah, I think, um, thanks for sharing that, Sarah. When you folks were talking, I thought a lot about what is our role and responsibility think about a harm reduction approach when we serve service users in the systems that they're operating in, because I think it's, I agree with you, Greg, and how you introduced this conversation of um, there are bigger systems at large or at play that we have to dismantle and we cannot do that overnight. And because we can't do that overnight, I often think about my role of like, what does harm reduction really look like? And um, in some of the work that I've done um, within the immigrant and refugee community, I think it's literally the first key principle that we should be following um, because oftentimes there is research that states that, you know, when a person comes to this country, uh, their mental health is far more better, but it's after they arrive that it declines, right? Um, and why, right? There are obviously reasons um, and circumstances that have happened. And so, yeah, I personally uh, really enjoy, um, or really like this book uh, by Gabriel Mati uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts. Uh, it, it talks a lot about his work um, in uh, Vancouver downtown with uh, folks who are dealing with substance abuse and addiction, but he talks a lot about what does it mean to be, um, you know, thinking about compassion and a trauma-informed lens care, but also from a harm reduction approach. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot about that. While I know I can't change the systems at large, I know that there are parts that I play um, or that I should be thinking about critically as I move as a social worker. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you everyone for sharing and thinking about this. I really appreciate it. So I'm gonna kind of start kind of moving into the next section. Um, so I'm hoping to pull into a focus on our emotions as practitioners in a context of responding to crises. So these are situations where there are incredibly high stakes and fear or sadness or whatever might rightfully be tapped into where things are at and where things can go. And importantly, emotions offer a lens. In fear, I see something I'm afraid of or perhaps of someone getting hurt or maybe I'm with someone who's just become homeless and I don't know if we're gonna be able to find a safe place for them to spend the night. And my emotions can call me to act in particular ways. Fear can push me to want to remove the threat or establish control. Fear can also tell me to run away. Uh, crises are moments that for me can, can and have been incredibly emotionally primed. And I suspect that's an experience that extends beyond me. I think they can also be loaded through the past um, and hook back into that trauma piece. Part of my work has been witnessing really devastating things happening to people I really deeply care about. And that's something that I felt magnifying what's going on for me when I'm responding to a crisis. And it's an embodied memory and reminder, and it colors my understanding of what's unfolding. Um, and to look back on, onto that definition offered of a crisis earlier, of a perceived threat or disruption, paired with a sense of not knowing how to resolve it and having trouble coping with what's happening, to me, it seems really important to notice how, as a practitioner, the space I'm occupying and responding to a crisis can mirror this. I think and I worry about how this informs my sense of what's going on in any given situation. Facts aren't neutral, especially, especially when they're intimately tangled up in someone else's life. And I think about how hard it can be to think and to listen in really intense emotional spaces and how possible resolution could be tied to something like those sorts of thoughts I named. Fear is compelling to remove a threat, to take control, and how this intersects with power we hold and how this can usher interventions that create so much harm. And especially if we're working in organizational contexts where those innovations are the norm as they often are. And within a crisis, there's so much immediacy. Choices in this moment really matter and 
I think that makes for a context where it can be particularly challenging yet simultaneously incredibly important to be self-aware and tapped into what those feelings might compel. And I named critical reflexivity in connection to this, and it seems really important to me to think about our emotional being as part of how we're attentive to what we bring to the moment. And I'm thinking in particular of Euclid Renita Wong's attention to bodily and emotive knowledge and how this interacts with our actions and our call for us to be attentive to the different ways we know, including our bodily and emotive experiences. So I'm gonna read a passage from her article, Knowing Through Discomfort, that really jumped out at me. Anti-oppressive work is inevitably unsafe and uncomfortable because it challenges existing modes of thinking and working. What needs to be cultivated in teaching critical and anti-oppressive social work, therefore, is not so much a sense of safety, but more an openness to the feeling of discomfort. And this comes up in the context of discussing pedagogy for social work education, but it also really resonates for me, thinking about sitting with all the discomfort and intensity that crises can bring, and particularly the discomfort that might be required to sit in crises in a way where we really center the person we're looking to support and perhaps work to decenter the weight of the perspective our discomfort might inform, especially when those perspectives may be echoed and entrenched within the norms and models of practice. In a way, this is all to say that the emotional space we inhabit implicates power. Um, so again, I'd like to open up the floor to everyone. I've got a couple questions that that that'll throw out and feel free to answer one or both or speak to something else or or whatever feels right. So one question is that when, so I think when really intense emotions intersect with our decision-making, if it's possible taking time, perhaps real substantial time and stepping back can feel like a really solid approach to getting some perspective and space. And in a crisis, it seems like one thing you can't do is exactly that. And how do, and like, how do we come to terms with that within our professional practice? Tied to that, um, thinking about critical practice, like part of that is this orientation to where we're working to recognize and interrogate how our perspectives are situated within our positionality in relation to discourse and the workings of power. And I wanna name emotion as being tied up in this context and entwined with our worldview and power. And I'm wondering if kind of like in practice within, you know, like crisis intervention, quote unquote, how we might go about thinking about that or approaching that. I think this is really the, um, it's one of the biggest questions we'll face, I think, especially if we'll be working in, in crisis situations because everything that we've been taught about reflection, both in practice and also in our own, uh, in our own lives, right? How we manage our own emotions, mindfulness, all these things. Um, I don't know that it needs to be thrown out the window, but it feels like it kind of goes out the window because you can't take a step back. You can't, you know, uh, take the space that you, I guess, are meant to when you're faced with such an intense situation. And um, a part of me feels like you have to compartmentalize and it feels like that's not the right social work answer or the right, you know, wellness answer, but I can't help but think that with practice, hopefully you will find a way to do that in a way that still feels effective and okay for you. Um, and it, that almost feels like the, the grim answer. I, you know, I don't know if there's something more hopeful, but um, I think that in practice you develop instincts around interacting with people and understanding systems and all of this. And what I can hope for is that maybe we develop instincts around ourselves in practice that allow us not only to rather quickly assess a situation, but also identify what's going on for us in the moment um, just as quickly almost, and to understand ourselves and our practice well enough um, to operate accordingly, operate based out of that knowledge. And I, I think of um, our professor Antoinette Clark recently said to us, 
who you are is how you're going to do this work, which to me resonated so much and has to do with all of this that we're talking about bringing ourselves and our emotion into the work. And so um, I know as I move through life, I develop more self-knowledge and instincts, you know, the ability to identify what, what automatic thoughts are happening for me, what behaviors are happening for me and know myself in that way. And so I guess maybe the best I can hope is that as I practice, I will develop that same self-knowledge um, that is practical to managing crisis situations as a professional. Um, unfortunately, I guess that only comes with time. <laughs> so that doesn't necessarily make entering the work any less daunting. But if anybody has tips that are much quicker acting than that, I would love to hear them. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing your thoughts, Sarah. As you were talking, one thing that I was thinking about is how much, like doing this work, one thing that I think is really, really pressing is how much we need each other too. Um, like being able to plan together, being able to decompress together, and also being able to like if something's going on and I'm like, I have no idea what to do, being able to like reach out to someone. Um, and I think like having those pieces there is really, really crucial. I mean, I, I can say too, like in my work, I've really appreciated being fortunate to work in an environment where I'm working with really good people that I trust and I can be vulnerable and be able to name that like, I have no idea what to do. Can we go through this? And sometimes there's time for that and sometimes there's not, but I, I think those pieces are really, really important. Yeah, just resonating with what you folks have shared. I think a lot about cross collaboration has really supported me in my own work um, with supporting folks who are in crisis, um, not just within the agency that I've worked at, but within me at large. So thinking about folks who, for myself, I realized that because of funding and the way that funding works, we are required to work in silos. So when people are experiencing crises, it's such an individualized way of approaching it, thinking about, oh, okay, like what have like the person comes to you and like what, what have I done wrong to be deserving of like not having a house or like access to food and um, I think oftentimes because of our the way our funding works we also I, for myself I've also been in a framework of like oh how can I fix this problem entirely on my own and I don't think that for me in learning that it, it's it, it can't not just be me um, it has to be people outside of me we have to work together to come together to like support someone um, I've had to like establish my own uh, list of networks that I have um, ongoing for like mental health related supports that are outside of institutions like the healthcare system. Um, obviously, with the consent of the client, if that's the route that they're going to take, then we're going to do that and we're going to be there together taking that step. However, if that's not the route that the client wants, then we're going to find an alternative route, right? Because I think one part of this mindful aspect of critical reflexivity is really asking ourselves, okay, like what do you want here? I'm listening, um, right? And listening, oftentimes, I think for myself, what I've realized, the discomfort is in that sense of silence, because in my mind, my mind is racing at a thousand beat per minute. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is happening. What do I do? Because I need to find a solution. Um, and so that's what's happening in the immediate. In the long term, what's going on is there's a whole bunch of silence because I'm just trying to figure out, okay, what can I really do to get this person into safety? And meanwhile, as I'm coming up with the solution, I'm not actually present and listening to what the needs of, of the service user is or the person in front of me. And so I think a lot about, yeah, like I've, I've had to create my own set of networks on the side to be like, okay, can I call so-and-so at this time? And I know that this person is not going to have to be on a wait list because I've developed the sense of relationship. And I know that this client can get through the door and they don't need to be on that wait list. Like what are, how can we maneuver through the system in that way and kind of build those relationships, even though these systems don't want us to, I think a lot about that. Um, that's something that I personally have done to like, not like be present of my own emotions and, you know, try to be aware of like, how is that not inflicting in this current crisis situation? And also be like, okay, how can I pull on from resources and supports that are within the community that are also not at their wits end, um, but that have the capacity to like take it on, take on a client that's in crisis right now. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I think about when I just heard what you folks shared. Thank you for that. 
think there's so many thoughts and feelings I have, and I'll try to be concise. I feel, on the one hand, like um, I like going back to like when we discuss self care versus community care, and just kind of how onerous it is when our bosses or certain government structures try to make us sometimes feel like we're not capable of doing this work if we're so easily either traumatized by it or where our emotions get to the best of us. Like, I'm sorry, I'm human and I'm a relational being and that someone's impending potential death also may impact me. Why else am I in this profession? Why else are we here? If, you know, we think about social work as care work, am I not supposed to care? Like, you know, and how privileged and easy it must be for folks in certain, you know, policy procedural roles or even politicians to then kind of take it back or make their choices being so disconnected from the front lines where of course it's the frontline folks you know in a more let's put it in a community care aspect of how much are they getting paid or in the case of volunteers they're not because they're trying to get into social work professions or counseling or the like, or because it's communities engaging in mutual aid who have no other means of actually being seen holistically in doing this work. And, or, I mean, even I think about the profession and just kind of like, you know, which a lot of us are gonna be vulnerable when we leave our, institution and we're looking at jobs and take into account like we'll even considering if a job offers ample benefits or not like I think it's so ridiculous like I used to work at a nonprofit where doing sort of crisis work it also meant that my like package to access counseling myself even though I worked with a bunch of counselors I could only afford three sessions by the standardized Alberta rate per year per benefit Meanwhile, my role, and that wasn't just me, but like so many other colleagues and nonprofit work, social workers alike or not, never mind whatever access or benefits we might have from the college. But I think I digress in that kind of sense. Like, I think there's so many other gaps that don't address, of course, how people like us or other folks are taken care of. And of course, we're emotional, relational beings. The body keeps the score. But I will ground myself a little bit. And I'm curious, you know, because I feel that at the same time, I know I come at it as a light-skinned non-white person. But I also know that I've witnessed certain colleagues and how they take on emotions, maybe not even coming from the right place. I know folks like Brene Brown and other really cool social workers ask us to really consider where our emotional regulation is our own responsibility. And even in regards to other things, like for example, white fragility and discomfort. So I even lean in further, for example, because are some emotions from fellow white colleagues when someone who is experiencing multiple marginalities, are they somehow unethically dehumanizing a person by only seeing them in their margins? And I ground myself a little bit, even with one of our readings that Renee gave us from Cindy Baskin on working together in circle, the challenges and possibility within mental health ethics, where she really does a good job at even communicating about Indigenous communities in which, you know, settlers, us, myself included, inevitably come through and come back to the idea that folks like Indigenous peoples in mental health struggles need rescuing. And thinking back to where Trans Lifeline, you know, talks about non-consensual active rescue, like naming it what it is, I feel like are some emotions, and I don't know, and I don't think we can find these answers out, and that's not the point, but I think there are some important reflections that all of us could look into, right? Like, you know, yes, I'm an emotional being. Yes, my emotional regulation is my own responsibility. And I'm also deserving of community care to help ensure that I and my colleagues can actually, you know, take the time and take the necessary steps to, if not compartmentalize or contain, but to actually continue doing this work and to heal in my own way. Apart from that though, are there ethical reflections for people in practice? Like where does my whiteness come in, in my discomfort with certain experiences of racialized people? Or am I deeming this 
more of a threat than the person who I'm on the phone or who I'm managing their case file? Do they see the same level of threat? And in many cases, we know not. Why is that? Will I do more harm than good if I try to make it more of a threat that they need to understand? You know, I think just so many questions like that, I think we can better ground ourselves in. And I think that, yeah, we need to really reconsider what our rules are because we don't want to end up causing more harm, I think, too, with how we, you know, I think it's valid that we'll feel some hard feelings, but when that may also guide what we do in that, as you said, Greg, quick moment of decision-making, because I know that I've been hurt by the ways that certain helping professionals have, you know, used their response to my shared trauma, validly so, that they felt inflicted, but to then ultimately, if not offer unsolicited or unhelpful advice, in some cases devastatingly, make the situation worse than I needed it to. I don't know. I have so many feelings, as always. I'm a Pisces, but um, I digress. I rant. I'm going to stop now. I um, I like that you brought in the concept of community care again, Jay, because it really hits on um, the thoughts I was having in response to Sindhuri and Greg's comments. Um, you know, about having colleagues, you know, you can turn to and the idea that we need each other. Um, it's really uh, touching me the ways that, you know, community care, I think when we've talked about it um, in terms of what that means for social workers, my perception has been that it's been more focused on um, what's our role in help in participating in or helping to facilitate or supporting community care of the people of the service users that we're working with. Um, but there is this entire other level of social workers being a community, right? And needing each other. And I'm really thinking about how, um, you know, we need each other for our own support, but then also as Sundari was saying, having that network and a really intimate knowledge of what everybody's doing and the ability to turn to people with relative ease can directly help the people we're trying to serve as well because we know how to most effectively access what might be helpful to them um and of course to everything you were saying jay our mental health <laughs> really matters <laughs> for helping other people's mental health and wellness right it's just so incredibly crucial in this profession and um but something I was, that was also striking me when, when Greg mentioned how we need each other is um, I think in school, uh, being trained as social workers, or at least from a more critical perspective that we're experiencing, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality um, and different types of trauma and differential impacts of trauma on BIPOC folks, queer folks, migrants, so many different people. Um, and I think we talk about it mostly in terms of, okay, as social workers, what is our position to service users who might embody a certain identity? What are the power dynamics? What do we need to do there? Um, but I think it's important to also broaden that out to the level of that community of social workers too, because when we need each other, but that can mean different things for a lot of different people. And so I think we also need to learn, and especially um, people in various positions of privilege, but I think very much so white people, it's not just thinking about how our racialized clients um, are differentially impacted by things. It's also our colleagues, right? And like, how are, what are the different ways that our colleagues are being treated or dumped on in the workplace and also just being impacted by the different types of traumas that they're interacting with in their work. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize that that's also, it's also the social workers experiencing that. Um, and when we think of how we can be there for each other as a network and a community, um, A, keeping that in mind for each other, but B, the importance of, you know, there can't be one social worker of color at an agency for, me for many reasons, but also because of the support you can give each other. Like, you know, I can't speak for racialized folks, but I feel like if you're having 
a, a really unique impact, um, you know, with a, a service user experiencing um, traumas that are informed by race, um, only having white colleagues to turn to is probably not super useful. So just one of the many, I think that community care level is one of the many other reasons um, why various types of diversity at the level of even like employment is so important. Thank you everyone for spending time with us. It's I think a lot to, to meditate on and unpack. Um, uh, maybe I'll eye the end of this episode and kind of one more quick thing I'm wanting to, to move through. Um, so this is, this, this I, I think really resonates with what, uh, what Jay was naming, how we're, we're impacted by his work and that's normal. And that's, that's something Renee was talking about in the context of our seminars as well that I really appreciate it. And I was thinking about that squared against Bonnie Burstow who names trauma as potentially acting as a lens into seeing the world more accurately. And if trauma saying the world isn't benign, it's not safe. And squaring this against us as aspiring critical social workers saying that things are messed up and need to be different. And this all feels pretty aligned to me. Um, and I'm inclined to think that that idea from Burstow can accurately encompass talking about affect more generally. Um, we have to be careful, but big feelings also make a claim about the world. They tell us what we care about, what's precious, what we want to embrace, what we want to fight for. Um, so I thought one last time, kind of throw it to the group and just some thoughts on how bringing our emotional selves to practice can be productive and generative and something that makes us better at what we do. I think in really broad strokes, the empathy and compassion that to an extent can only come from your own inner life, not necessarily having the exact same experiences as other folks, but um, I just think there's so much wisdom that can come, of course, through life experience, but giving a lot of credit, not just to um, uh, these types of knowledge you can put on your resume, right? There's so much knowledge and wisdom that comes from your inner life and your emotional experience. Um, and I think that's invaluable to social work practice. So how we invite it into the space, as we've talked about today, there's so many questions about that, um, but it is valuable to me and that, that I don't question. I think for me on, it's kind of like a day in day out basis doing this work, it's super overwhelming and can feel like a grind. And sometimes that can feel really it can feel like nothing's changing. Um, and for me, that emotional piece and particularly how it connects me to the folks I'm working with, like that is really, really important in grounding me for like why I show up, why I am gonna put everything I can put into this. Yeah, for me, I would say uh, it's the resiliency and the strength that I get to see on a day to day basis from the communities I interact with. I think that eases the unbearable pain that sometimes comes on when I think of uh, the fact that the systems are really impacting people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think about the resiliency in these communities. Yeah. If I may, I want to lean in on actually a social worker by the name of Kai Cheng Tom uh, in a lovely collection of essays that she has titled, I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. And I think, uh, which we can include in the show notes, I think um, a book like this, both in the sense of ways that harm can be done, some aspects of gender-based violence that actually even 
in relation to suicide, community accountability, or even in doing this work. There's just so much in here that I was just like, Kai Chang, like, what do you have to say about some of the stuff here? And if I can share just a couple quick quotes from the essay that titles her book uh, that she wrote, I Hope We Choose Love, where she asks readers to go through a bit of a reflection. And there are a couple points that I think are very relational to, or related to what we discussed. And the first one being, we must invest deeply and fervently in the dignity of human life. We must not give in to the urge to do harm, even in justice's name. We must recognize, name, and transform the instinct to humiliate, harm, and coerce those we see as bad or wrongdoers as well. No one is disposable. And as Kai Chang continues on to do different reflections, she ends, which I think just really fits here, and I hope provides us a sense of hopefulness and community building and reinforces the values. And I think crucially, even the ways that the four of us even, and I'm sure many other social workers alike, go in and stay in this work. Um, we can choose to consume each other or cancel each other, I'll add. Or we can choose love. Even in the midst of despair, there is always a choice. And I hope we choose love. Thanks for that. That feels like a really appropriate place to, to wrap this up to me. All right, well, thank you everyone for, for going through this with me. I know this is heavy and hard. Thank you.